Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this time by Tuparev. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Jason Snell. Hello, Stephen Hackett. It's good to hear your your voice on the other end of, of the line, far away, not in space, but still far away. I'd like to reach out to you with my robotic arm. Mm, you're just segueing right into this thing, aren't you? <laughs> well, I've been thinking about robotic arms today. Okay. That's all. Like, And, and how you can ha- put them in all sorts of interesting places, but only if you know a very kind Canadian. It's true. Canada arm the third. It's happening. Yes, Canada Arm 3 is a thing that is has been announced by the government of Canada, which, by the way, I, I was uh, clicking on this link, and I got a little link preview in Google Docs, and it's a super aggressive um, maple leaf, and it made me laugh. Like, good, well-branded government of Canada. <laughs> got a big fa- fav icon of uh, a maple leaf. Anyway, uh, if you don't know, Canada has been supplying remote-controlled robot arms for uh, decades. Now, it built the original Canada Arm, which was on installed in the space shuttle, so that you know they open up the the shuttle bay and they can use the arm to like lift things out or put things in or hold the hold the Hubble telescope or whatever. Um, and then a Canada Arm Two is what's used at the International Space Station. It moves around and it grabs and moves stuff and it can grab. In fact, I think the early SpaceX stuff uh, uh, didn't have auto auto dock right so right. it would come close and then the arm would just grab a hold of a spaceship and go clunk here you go mm-hmm. um so canada arm super important they also built a, a little robot called dexter and i don't know if we've talked about dexter much but he's like a little uh he it it's like a, a little scrambly uh space robot that like zips around on the iss and uh and can fix stuff uh so so basically robotics for uh, maneuvering out in uh, the vacuum of space where uh you know it's harder for people to do stuff but the robot arm can do that stuff um so it, it, there it's a cool uh, it's a cool system super cool you mentioned the one on the space station that was launched in 2001 obviously a uh, a huge part of its job is is going out and grappling incoming spacecraft and berthing them to the space station, but it has also been involved in maintenance and even construction on the space station. It's like uh, kind of building itself, <laughs> in a sense. Uh, but I was uh, obviously familiar with Canada Arm from the shuttle days, but I did some digging. There were actually five of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they flew over 90 shuttle missions, so each orbiter had a Canada Arm assigned to it. It didn't always fly with it. Sometimes it was needed, sometimes it wasn't. And ARM-302 was aboard the Challenger uh, when it had its uh, accident in 86. And you can see them. So the Atlantis ARM is on display with the shuttle at Kennedy Space Center. And it is really neat to see it. It's way, way bigger than I had envisioned <laughs> in my mind. But it's uh, it's a really, f- obviously, flexible and powerful system. The one at the space station is upgraded from the orbiter version. Uh, mm-hmm. It can handle a lot more mass and has more articulating joints, and they're gonna continue pushing it forward with Gateway. It looks like, yeah, and they move it; they can move it around and stuff, which is pretty great. So, so Canada Arm Three is for is for the Lunar Gateway, um, the space station that's going to be built in cislunar space as part of the Artemis missions, and this is the next chapter in the Canada Arm story. This is um, 
the what they announced Canada Arm Three. It's a next generation arm. It's got, um, in addition to sort of what you think of as the Canada Arm, it's got a bunch of specialized tools that can it can use. It's got like a special like super dexterous module for very fine work. And among the uses at the gateway, it will be capturing vehicles. It will be able to move modules of the space station around. And it can also assist, obviously, astronauts, just as uh, the Canada Arm does on the ISS during spacewalks. But uh, an interesting tidbit, I think the thing that really sets Canada Arm 3 apart, is that it is going to be much more autonomous than any of the previous Canada Arms had to be. Because if you think about it, the shuttle and the ISS are uh, have a few things that are not going to be true at Gateway. One of them is they are always uh, crewed, right? There are always people around. Mm-hmm. So you can just sort of run them from there. Uh, whereas uh, whereas this has to be remote controlled, at least some of the time, because Gateway is not going to be continuously staffed with people. There's also the other thing, which is, well, if there's not somebody who wants to control it from space, it's fine. We'll control it from the ground. And of course, being in cislunar space near the moon means there's way too much time delay to control it in real time. So it really has to be a much more autonomous device than any of the previous Canon Arms. And that's that's the big upgrade for uh, Canon Arm 3, in addition to having the super dexterous mode and the extra tools. So uh, it's just, you know, the the story continues... Um, good job, Canada. Picking up things and moving them around in space. That's the, that's a job for a Canadian arm. <laughs> yeah, its track record really is amazing. And in reading about this, you know, we think about Canada arm as just this big arm that can reach out and grab things. But like you said, it is also about the control system. And that was something they upgraded over the course of even the shuttle's lifespan, where the earlier models got upgraded later on to handle more mass, but to be able to do new maneuvers that weren't available to it at the beginning. They've really evolved this platform over decades, and I'm excited to see it move into this next chapter with Gateway. Uh, I'd also like to shout out to listener Ryan, who just pointed out that uh, space, like Apple, is going through an arm transition. Well done, Ryan. That's a deep cut for those who understand computer things. Uh, Well done. (laughs) Uh, and on that note, let's move on to our next pre-flight checklist item. Okay. <laughs> um, suborbital rockets. So you've heard of commercial crew. How about suborbital crew? That doesn't sound it, as exciting. It's, it's, well, yes, this is true. It doesn't. But it's a new thing inside the commercial crew program that they just established this month. And the idea is that NASA wants to work with commercial partners to buy seats on suborbital vehicles. Now, NASA hasn't had a suborbital flight since the 60s. An a, a, a astronaut on a suborbital flight, like so. Why would they want to do this? Um, the idea is they think that they can use some of these suborbital vehicles for training and for research. So um, the two companies that are very clearly kind of testing vehicles for suborbital stuff, and and primarily the way it's been described is for space tourism. Although they figured that research could be part of it too. It's Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin, and both are have not yet. Uh, had people in a configuration as like a tourist. Virgin Galactic has sent people into space with their craft. Blue Origin hasn't had people on board yet, but they're both planning that. And the idea is it is uh, more affordable to get a seat on one of these suborbital crafts than it would be to send somebody to the International Space Station. And the duration of weightlessness that these crafts feel at the height of their, uh, you know, as they're going up to the top of their trajectory and coming back down, they have minutes of microgravity as opposed to 
you know, whatever it is, 15 seconds, 20 seconds of microgravity on the Vomit Comet, flying those parabolas, uh, like they how they shot Apollo 13. Um, so they, the idea here is that you could do, you could check out equipment that's supposed to work in microgravity, you could train astronauts, and you could also send NASA researchers up there with, uh, with microgravity experiments that can be done in minutes, where previously it was sort of like either you could do it in seconds on the Vomit Comet or it would take a lot of money to put it up on the ISS. Uh, so it's an interesting kind of in-between thing, which I'd never really thought of before, Mm-mm. but it's an interesting idea. And obviously there's somebody at NASA, unless this is purely a let's find a way to funnel money to some of these companies. But I, I think this seems to have been generated from this realization that there's an in-between space that uh, that has value where they, they need some microgravity, but they don't need it for very long and that these uh, commercial providers could give that to them. Yeah, it is really interesting opening up this window of time that is not available. And it's not something I thought of either. Blue Origin in particular has had a really good run of of test flights. They've had several suborbital flights over the last maybe year and a half or so, and they're really getting that dialed in. And I think you're right. It's, it's good for those companies getting R&D money from NASA in there, but... Yeah, it'd be really interesting to see what sorts of uh, things NASA has in mind for right. these flights. Yeah, what equipment are they checking out? What experiments are they doing that can be run in in five minutes or whatever instead of uh, you know days or months or whatever? It's interesting to think about it. But anyway, that that is now a new office inside the commercial crew program, and they will be working on uh, stuff like this. So we'll keep an eye on it. Maybe. You know, it's not so. I think the other thing I would take away from this is when you read about uh, Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin, don't just brush it off as space tourism because there's there's potentially more going on there. Um, I have a breaking pre-flight checklist item, Ooh. Stephen. Breaking news: Just today, the U.S. Mint announced a new space-related coin. And I want to mention it. So there's uh, in the U.S. Uh, eternal struggle that the U.S. has to release a one dollar coin that people will use. It will never happen. We have stupid one dollar bills that are a waste of time, and we shouldn't have one dollar bills. We should have coins, and we shouldn't use those anyway. But uh, that's my little rant about one dollar coins. One dollar coins are great. Why do we have a one dollar bill anyway? Uh, they are releasing one dollar coins in a series with designs celebrating American innovation. This is something that the program started in 2018 with an inaugural coin, and then what they're doing is they're releasing five of these, oh, four of these every year. So it's like the old quarter program that they sure. did, yeah. Where they're gonna they're gonna do four of them every year, and it's for the 50 states, uh, District of Columbia, and five U.S. territories. Uh, so it'll go for a while. Um, they did four in 2019, four in 2020. The new 2020 American Innovation Dollars, so it's like the Statue of Liberty on the front, and then it's a thing honoring innovation from a particular state or territory or district on the back. And the new 2020 designs just came out, and one of them is for Maryland, hope home of the Space Telescope Science Institute. And indeed, it 
Maryland's image in the American Innovations coin series is the Hubble Space Telescope. So if you want a coin with the Hubble on it, you are going to be able to get one. They are going to make $1 coins with the Hubble Space Telescope on them. And Stephen, you'll be very excited to know the NASA Worm logo is extremely visible on the side of the Space Telescope on the coin. Not only that, but United States of America and Maryland, all the text is also rendered in a worm-like font. Mm-hmm. It's a uh, super wormy, wormy coin. You wanted a wormy space coin, you got it now. Maximum Finally. wormy. Finally, the Wormy Space Coin is here. <laughs> By the way, uh, last year's coins, and I didn't even know this program existed, honestly, until today. Uh, last year's coins included uh, a coin from Delaware. Okay, l- l- little side note. Some of the coins are less inspiring in terms of American innovation. It's like a garden or, you know, a thing that's in our state. Isn't it innovative? And I, I, I'm sure they've got a lot of backstory. Some of these states of like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. This is super scientific. Yeah, yep, yep, sure. Uh, super innovative. I'm not entirely sure I buy it. But for Delaware, last year, their coin celebrates Annie Jump Cannon, who you may never have heard of, but she co-created the very first serious library of stars the first serious attempt to organize and classify stars based on their temperatures and their spectral types and that's the delaware coin so you might want to check out these uh these coins we'll put a link to the uh, u.s mint site so you can take a look at the uh at the uh shiny wormy space telescope coin i had no idea this program was a thing did you no did you see the telephone one Oh, yeah. That's, in Massachusetts, its coin is literally like a rotary dial of a phone, and the text says, telephone! <laughs> oh, boy. This is cool. No, way to go. I want a Hubble dollar now. Real bad. Yeah, well, I think I think uh, we're going to be able to do that. Some of, the other, some of the other coins, not to throw anybody under the bus, um, Connecticut's coin is the Gerber variable scale. Okay. Um, that, that's, that's innovative. That's fine. South Carolina is septima clark who is septima clark i'm gonna do some research right now septima clark black american educator and civil rights activist developed literacy and citizenship workshops that played an important role in the drive for voting rights and civil rights that's awesome okay there you go D- delaware as i said Annie jump cannon mm-hmm. this is good pennsylvania it's polio vaccine with a uh with a microscope that's yeah, awesome that one looks good uh, New Jersey, I'm not quite sure what's going on there. Electric light bulb, I guess. So Thomas Edison, it's honoring Thomas Edison without mentioning Thomas Edison, which I endorse. I think that's awesome because <laughs> he was a jerk. Uh, Georgia has the trustees garden. Okay, it's a garden. Great. I'm sure it's good. Uh, anyway, those, and then there's the American Innovators inaugural coin, which came the year before, which is uh, got like gears on it and is not as exciting. So uh, do, you know, every state, I'm just putting the challenge out there, do an awesome coin and have it be space related, maybe. Or maybe not. Telephone. Who knew? Uh, we should move on to topics now, I think. Now, now that we've had our breaking coin news about the Wormy Space coin, I that, think That's what to, people come to liftoff for. The, I the need to compose and... myself. Yeah. Yeah, numismatics. Yeah, we're going to move into stamp collecting, too. We'll throw in some space stamps, some space coins. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a, it's a pivot for us. That's our big pivot for our, our, our next set of episodes. Yeah. It's all about collecting uh, coins and stamps. Someone sent me a Columbia mission coin, like a challenge coin for the mission. Uh-huh. In uh from April eighty one. It's really cool. The gym of the wow. galaxy. On the back the shuttle's landing and it's got uh a spaceship has landed on Earth. It's pretty nice. 
Young Crippen, STS-1. Right there. I'm impressed. All I got is my Relay FM challenge coin. That's a good one, too. Not really space-related, but still good. It's space-related to me because I do this podcast with you on Relay FM. So there you go. So good at this. Topic one. Let's uh, <laughs> let's let's do it. There's some. This is uh, this is kind of the timely, uh, topical like big picture topical section. It is. So on Wednesday of last week, NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine announced that the agency's headquarters building in Washington D.C. is going to be renamed the Mary W. Jackson Headquarters Building. I think this is the full name. That name should sound familiar to you, dear Liftoff listener. Uh, she is one of the core people in the Hidden Figures book movie movement. Um, first African-American female engineer at NASA. If you read or watch Hidden Figures, or if you get into that history, a lot of these people were behind the scenes of some amazing work and responsible for a lot of that amazing work. But at the time, NASA was segregated in its facilities, and they did not get even a fraction of the respect or the honor that they that their work deserved and that they deserved. This has been a, a process that NASA has been addressing over the last few years. Hidden Figures brought it to a lot of people's minds and, and information for the first time. But Jackson was awarded the Congressional Gold, Gold Medal in 2019. She passed away in 2005, 2006, I think. But really cool, really cool to see this building be named after her. Yeah, absolutely, and and sort of past past time for these kinds yes. of uh, people from NASA's past who have gone unappreciated up till now to be you know given the level of honoring that all sorts of other random people have gotten who probably deserved it a whole lot less. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're gonna get to one of those in a second. Um, this follows uh, Katherine Johnson uh, having a facility named after her, uh, the Katherine Johnson Independent Verification and Validation Facility in West Virginia, uh, bears her name as of 2019. So it, it's great; these people should be honored in this way. And and this is how NASA and, and how a lot of organizations, right, universities, do the same thing. They honor people with outstanding careers by putting their name on things, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, this brings us to sort of the second part of this topic, which is Stennis Space Center. So as this is going on, there's also a conversation being had online about Stennis Space Center and who it's named after and, and why it has that name and why that name should change. So Stennis, which of course is where things like the SLS Green Run will take place. It's in southern Mississippi. It's a bunch of test stands out in the Delta where NASA tries not to blow up rocket motors. But it was named after a senator from Mississippi, John Stennis, uh, who died in 95. Uh, But he was a segregationist. And while at the end of his life he did back some civil rights legislation, most of his history on this topic is atrocious. And the center was named after him in 1988 by President Reagan. And the language that NASA uses is like for his, that was renamed for his uh, deep felt commitment to the space program. And from what I can tell and read, even in NASA's own history for the Stennis Space Center, 
there's not a lot of evidence backing that claim up. Um, you know, I, I don't know if this was a political naming or what, but there's a lot of people on merit alone who deserve their name on the Space Center more than John C. Stennis, and that's before you get to his history of extremely racist, extremely hateful beliefs. Yeah, he seems like a bad fit, right? Mm-hmm. Just like bottom line, bad fit for lots of reasons. And I know that this is a hot button issue uh, where we're talking about, you know, because what happens is these things get inserted into uh, into public life, that names get inserted, statues, flags. And if they're there long enough, then they take on this additional meaning, which is uh, familiar and nostalgic and it becomes historic for another reason, right? And that is, that's true, that when somebody says this statue or flag or name on a building or whatever is not just about that person, but it's been there for 50 years or whatever, and now it's historic and I grew up with it and all of that, that's true. It also doesn't change the other meaning of it. And it is worth having a little bit of reflection of like, why do we honor people and name things after people? And why was this person honored? And honestly, do we consider that honor worthy still? Because the fact is, there is no, in my opinion, there is no rule that says because people made a decision in the past, everybody in the future has to follow it no matter what. Like, I just don't believe that. I think that there are ways to take things in context, and I'm sure there are people... A lot of valid debates about like, well, you know, this person, you know, is like, you know, a lot of talk about the um, the founding fathers, right, and and of the U- U.S. and uh, a lot of them were slave owners, and there's a debate to be had about whether uh, that means that we should uh, pull their names off of things or not. There are two sides to that debate. I I see the arguments on both sides. There are other ones like Stennis where I look at it and I think. He, it was named because he's he was from Mississippi and he was a powerful senator who probably, you know, greased a lot of wheels. And his track record is very specifically recent and very specifically awful. And why did this guy get a NASA center name for him in the first place? Like, it doesn't bear up under a lot of scrutiny when you mm-hmm. look at it historically. It, it looks much more like a political yeah. sop to a, a powerful guy. And uh, so this, to me, is an easy one. Like... He he his track record is awful and it isn't appropriate. And I know that it's been named that since 1988. But you know what? Life goes on. And this is the easy one. Like, I'm sure there are are, uh, like because there are nine field centers uh, that are uh, NASA field centers. And they're all they're, they're named for white men, two presidents, two heads of agencies, two astronauts, one pioneer of rocketry, one cabinet member, and one sen- segregationist U.S. senator, right? Mm-hmm. Like one of these is it's this is the easiest of calls. And I know that there are people who are going to be like, yes, but I've driven past Stennis. I worked at Stennis, whatever, for all this time. It means I know it means more that name. It means more and simultaneously less than that man. But it, the, to me, this seems like a no-brainer, right? Like, this guy doesn't deserve to have his name on a center of of uh, of science and learning. And it's not a message that the people of color who would go to work there don't, d- don't deserve to go to work at a place honoring somebody like John Stennis. Totally agreed. 
uh, we I do want to point out that this uh, sort of conversation was kicked off, at least this version of it, uh, by Will Pomeritz. He is Virgin Orbit's vice president of special projects. Uh, he also co-founded the Brooke Owens Fellowship, which is this program for career advancement for women and other gender minorities in aerospace. Uh, he There's a blog post on Space Policy Online. I definitely recommend everyone go check it out. It goes into more detail. And, you know, the timing of this is right in line with the first part of this topic, the the building being renamed in D.C. after Mary Jackson. It feels very much like they'll announce it when they change the name. And otherwise, they're not going to say a word about it. But this this strikes me as being one of the easier ones. And I know, I mean, there are, there are arguments about Stennis's long career in the Senate and all of that. But in the end, it, it seems like... Are really inappropriate. This, this, if we can't do this one, then what are we even doing? Because this seems like a pretty a pretty easy case. And again, I will say, it is not just about changing the name because he's inappropriate in a lot of ways, but also the fact that I think changing the names of things because what made sense 50 years, 30 years ago no longer makes sense. I think that's okay. I think we need to be open to that. I don't think we need to be burdened by the decisions. Like, I don't think we need the politics of the late 80s and a decision by Ronald Reagan and his administration to be something that's inviolate. I think we can easily look at it and say, you know what? That doesn't pass the smell test anymore. Right. You want to tell us about our sponsor? Sure. Uh, This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Tuparev Technologies. Now, Tuparev believes in creating modern tools for the astronomy community, for all Apple platforms and for the web. Whether you're a professional astronomer, an amateur, a student, or just love the night sky, the team at Tuparev Technologies is now revealing their first app is called uh, Starbrush. It's going to handle any astronomical data, 2D images, spectroscopic data, data generated by radio observatories, multidimensional color images and sky surveys, astronomical tables and catalogs, so much, so much. And it'll work on Mac, on iOS, and in the cloud. Starbrush allows you to calibrate images by building image pipelines of any complexity, perform a myriad of image analysis tools, and support your research in astrometry, photometry, and spectroscopy. Those are both, those are all fun to say. Finally, Starbrush lets you automate your nightly image processing tasks. So if you want to get early access to Starbrush, be one of the first to join the astronomy community at Starbrush, go to starcluster.app slash liftoff. That's a great URL. I love it. And join their email newsletter. That's starcluster.app slash liftoff to join the Tuparev email newsletter for Starbrush. Thank you to Tuparev Technologies for supporting the show and all of Relay FM. Some big news, Jason. Is it that it's time for the SLS segment? It is. It's back. The SLS segment. Space, Space Launch, launch System segment, segment explaining, explaining geopolitics, geopolitics, mechanical, mechanical systems, systems, engineering, engineering achievements, achievements, news, and, and trivia. Trivia. <laughs> SLS segment. It's back. It's back. It will never, it will never ever leave. It was just sleeping. It will survive us. It will go on into the far future. The SLS segment cannot be stopped. <laughs> so COVID obviously has slowed everything down. We've been speaking about that for a while now as it affects various timelines across the industry. But the SLS does keep inching along. And there's uh, two pieces of news I wanted to talk to you about today, Jason. Okay. The first, this is a big one. Uh, engineers have completed the rocket's structural testing for the Artemis lunar missions. The last piece was testing a liquid oxygen 
structural test article. So this big liquid oxygen tank was tested to the point of breaking. We've spoken about this before. All human-rated spacecraft have margin built in. So you would have, this can withstand this amount of pressure, this temperature, and then you basically build it where it is two to three times beyond that. And the way you do that is you see, you design it to be way more robust and to break it a much further point down the road. And one way you test that is purposely break it and see and see if it breaks in the way that you expect. So that's what's uh, what's going on here. So this final test, this liquid oxygen t- tank test article, it's huge, 70 feet tall, 28 feet in diameter. It gets bolted to this massive uh, test sites at Marshall. I got to see some of these a few years ago when I was down there for the state of NASA. Was that in 2018, I think, when we when we went? Was, yeah, maybe maybe even 17. What is what is time? But they do a lot of this testing at Marshall. And what is really spectacular about this is these test stands in and of themselves are amazing pieces of engineering because they have to hold whatever you're testing and they have to keep it where it's supposed to be. So if you're testing something like this where you were going to overfill a liquid oxygen tank, well, when that thing bursts, your test stand has to withstand that and and it has to keep everything where it's supposed to be so everything doesn't become shrapnel. It's got to take all of these forces and and is covered in sensors to measure everything, right? So they're what I was really impressed by when I got to see some of these up close was these are like living, breathing things. These test stands aren't just a bunch of metal beams bolted together. They are designed hand in hand with the hardware they're testing. It's really fascinating. Yeah. Shrapnel is bad, by the way. Shrapnel. just Shrapnel is bad. Mm-mm. Don't want that. Not, nope. not at all. Mm-hmm. No one's near these things when they do this. Everyone's far away. Uh, but this test was meant to find the breaking point of the tank. And as you would want in this sort of test, it failed as predicted, both in location and at the approximate load level they expected. So it, it behaved as expected. It was meant to burst at this point and it burst at that point. Uh, which means it was a successful test. If you watch the video, the thing explodes, but that's what it was supposed to do. Yeah, how are you going to know when it breaks unless you try to break it? Right, like this is the beauty of of this. This is when people talk about like a SpaceX uh, Starship explosion. They're like, oh boy, you know the SpaceX guys. They make all these things that explode, and it's like, hmm, no, this is rocket science. This is literally what it is. Is is stuff blows up sometimes on purpose because you got to test it and you got to find the the limits and the edges and what what the issues are. So so yeah, it's a good explosion. A good explosion is what you want. It's a it's a rapid expected disassembly. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and so this completes the SLS structural qualification testing at Marshall. This multi-year process has now come to an end. It's the largest testing campaign the center has ever seen since the shuttle program. And it's uh, it's a really big deal that this is finished because it means that the even though the SLS, that core stage is built, it's got the shuttle main engines bolted to the back of it. We're getting ready to talk about the solid rocket boosters. All this stuff is coming together. You've got to go through all this testing and make sure that you're good to go and you don't have to go back and redesign something or re-engineer something. So this is a really big step forward. And in the world of COVID, uh, really great that they were able to pull this test off. And this is a big thing off the to-do list. The SLS to-do list is very long. Yeah. (laughs) Very expensive. Uh Uh-huh. 
we we mentioned the solid rocket booster. So of course SLS has a core stage. It has big solid rocket boosters on either side of that, not unlike the space shuttle stack. And they're actually based on the shuttle SRBs. They're just bigger and more powerful. Uh, NASA has announced plans to order six more of these solid rocket boosters um, from Northrop Grumman. That would bring the total up to 18, so they could support nine Artemis missions, two per mission. Uh, this contract is about $49.5 million. They're still ironing things out, um, but it would basically cut Northrop Grumman loose to start purchasing the equipment and kind of getting the ball rolling on these these boosters. These take a long time to build. You got to test everything. Uh, and the contract will actually run through 2030. So it kind of gives you an idea of, of how far out some of these will be. Even though the contract ends in 2030, we wouldn't necessarily see some of these until years later, potentially. Right. Uh, so that that is, this follows additional orders NASA has made for additional Orion capsules and additional core stages from Boeing. We spoke about that months ago. And so this right. is sort of circling back around to that and getting the rest of their their components ready to go because this is not a reusable rocket. Yeah, and I feel like I mean we'll see what happens every time if if the uh if the current administration gets voted out in November um you know new NASA administrator it's like well what are they going to do now but it does feel like getting these contracts in place it's starting to feel to me like SLS is going to happen Artemis is going to happen it's just a matter of the time frame but it feels very much like uh, once you've once you've signed the paperwork, right, and you've bought all of this stuff, that um, you know it's going to happen. It's just a matter of how often and when and where and 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 why. But it's uh, it's on the it's on the case. It's it's going it's going forward. While we're talking about SRBs, the first two, uh, their components are all in Florida at Kennedy for the mm. first SLS launch in. 2020-something. 20, 20 <laughs> what are they even saying now? I think they're still saying summer 21, but... Yeah, I think so. For the first one, which is just an, an, an uncrewed... Yeah. And so that stacking will commence at some point. They, this gets all interleaved in the schedule uh, in the vehicle assembly building where they bring in the core stage and they got to put in the uh, like the adapter for the... There's lots of stuff they got to do. Uh, but everything is kind of waiting in Florida for the other components to come. And Northrop Grumman is already at work for Artemis 2 and Artemis 3 solid rocket motor segments. So this uh, this train just keeps on rolling. Like you said, parts coming in, components coming in. And I think you're right. The closer we get to this, it feels like this is an inevitability and that whatever happens under a new administration, if that happens later this year, would be shifting timelines and sort of mission dynamics. But I don't think it would be a an all-out change to the the broad picture at this point. Yep, definitely agree. We'll see what happens, but um, it feels like this has got a lot of momentum now. It, we all have our problems with the SLS. We've outlined those before. It's an expensive program, and NASA could maybe do a lot of it with commercial partners. But if you're going to do it, then like we just at some point NASA's got to commit, and it feels like ordering a bunch of stuff for for at least nine launches. That feels like committing to me. Any other SLS news? I think that's it. Uh, All right. it's, it's kind of, uh, it's been kind of quiet just, just because really everything has slowed down so much with the pandemic, uh, which in parts of the world where NASA is extremely active with SLS is is pretty bad right now, like in the South and in Florida. 
Right. So it's been uh, it's been slower than it has been for sure. All right. Well, let's uh, let's finish the show by talking about black holes. How about that? Let's do it. Everybody loves black holes, Stephen. They're it's so true. charismatic. They're just they're very exciting. Black holes. Uh, two discoveries from LIGO, which we've talked about before. LIGO is the Gravity Observatory, which is a new thing that this was the first time we used the concepts of relativity, uh, Einstein's concepts of how space and time would be warped by certain events to discover gravitational waves. And LIGO continues to make discoveries, which is really awesome. So this is the brand new, like newer than this podcast field of gravity observatories. And they made two big discoveries. So I'm going to tell you about both of them. The first one is a black hole merger that uh, took place 780 million light years away. It's very, very far away. But this is what you can do with with uh, the gravity observatories is you can see this stuff. So a black hole with 23 solar masses, so 23 times the, the mass of our sun, merged with an object that was about 2.6 solar masses, so much smaller. Mm-hmm. And that's actually unusual um, to have one object so big. The ratio there is really unusual. Um, and there are questions about that, not even what I'm talking about directly here, but there are questions about like how do systems like this get formed uh, where people are looking at solar system formation models and they look at this and they're like, how did that happen? And we don't know. And it could just be kind of random chance, but it's like, how, how do you end up in a situation where these things are orbiting around each other and then coalescing when one of them is so much bigger than the other? And we don't know that, but that's not the biggest mystery here. Um, that object, 2.6 solar masses, what is it? What is it? It falls between what we know about two different kinds of weird objects. Um, the lightest black hole ever measured was about five solar masses. Okay. And our current models for black holes that are created by mechanisms we understand using usually involving sort of the death of a star don't really explain how you could get a black hole this small. So, okay, it's half roughly the mass of what we think of as the bottom limit of the black hole. So that's interesting. But it could be something else, right? It could be a neutron star. Neutron stars are the ultra dense cores left over after a star uh, ends its life. And they are super weird objects, too, made of super weird material. It's all neutrons. All of the, the density is so great. The pressure is so great that all the, all the uh, protons and electrons fuse into neutrons. And it's just this super squishy neutron material, ultra-dense. But there's just enough uh, force to keep it from collapsing into a black hole. Here's the problem. Neutron stars are thought to have an upper mass limit of 2.16 solar masses. And above that, they would just collapse into a black hole. That would be the end of the process. So, you know, there are some theories that try to explain what could be found between 2.16 and five solar masses. Um, You know, maybe there's an intermediate collapse step of some kind. Um, Neutron stars, so yeah, they get this super, super pressure, uh, but they're held up by neutron degeneracy pressure and repulsive nuclear forces. And the idea is there are some forces on that level that are fundamentally resisting matter being pushed into other parts of matter, right? Like, like at, at even at levels of this density, something where there's no atoms left, it's just neutrons. There are some forces that push back and provide enough resistance that it doesn't collapse further. Um, But at some point, 
they collapse, obviously, because we have black holes. So what is that limit? And as I said, it's 2.16 solar masses, which is called the Tolman-Oppenheimer-Volkoff limit. The idea there is electron uh, or neutron degeneracy pressure and repulsive nuclear forces, they can't hold up anymore. And it crosses over a threshold and boom, it's a black hole. Okay. Or is it? Stephen, or, or is it? <laughs> because we don't know. Um, and that's why it's interesting and exciting that we find this thing that's two and a half solar masses. It doesn't fit our models. There are some theoretical objects out there. There's this concept of a quark star, for example. Um, the idea here is that maybe there's a step between a neutron star and a black hole that we just haven't seen, where beyond 2.16, those uh, forces that resist collapse, fall away. But there's another force that's an intermediate step that is a different kind of material. Maybe it's a, a you know, the quark stars, the idea is maybe it's just a whole mass of, of, of quarks that are now somehow something is keeping it from completely deflating and becoming a black hole. But we, we don't know. There are ideas, but they're just ideas. So, um, so that's fun because what we've got here is an object that shouldn't exist based on the bounds of what we know for neutron stars and black holes, but LIGO saw it. So what is it? What is it? And that's fun because that, you know, that makes scientists go, huh, let's like, I, I got some ideas and it, it like that seeing something that we can't explain is one of the most exciting things in science, because then everybody has to try to figure out what did we do wrong and why did we not think this was a thing mm-hmm. and what could it be? So uh, a really fun observation, um, leaving aside the fact that they don't understand the, the imbalance in masses between the two objects of like what the heck this thing is. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. I can't help but think that imbalance is part of the answer. We just don't. Could be, could be. Um, Yeah, it's very interesting. So what they what you do is you take a uh, you take a you like cut a black hole like a slice of it off. Hmm. No, that's not how it works. It could be. I mean, the other thing is like could could this be uh, like little micro black holes that accreted over time and became something that was a larger black hole? But that would require like the micro black holes are theoretically part of the like the Big Bang and they've been around for a very long time and they're very small and like I don't know. Ask the uh, ask the astronomers; they're figuring it out. Ask the physicists, but uh, they've got a new challenge now, so I like that. But wait, there's more. There is, I said, another LIGO uh, thing that was discovered. Um, this one's a little bit different. It's another black hole merger, uh, a more normal one where the two masses are similar. Um, but this is a project that they did in conjunction with optical telescopes. So. LIGO is looking at the gravity waves rippling through space-time. It's not related to light in that way. But they've been working with optical observatories to see if they can make observations simultaneously of a black hole merger and like a, a flicker or a brightening in an object that they can see in the sky. So there was a, I think, like six-month uh, time where astronomers at Caltech and LIGO surveyed the skies monitored the LIGO data and then tried to match up their data to see if any flares could match the timing of a lot and location of a LIGO observation. Um, And you may be saying, how could you observe something from a black hole? We know black holes are so dense and so gravitationally uh, powerful that they can't let light escape, but black holes are generally surrounded by a 
a, a disc, an accretion disc, they call it, full of junk that's being swirled around by the intense gravity. But not all of it goes into the black hole. Some of it misses and is accelerated and squeezed and heats up and glows in light and in other forms of radiation. So um, they seem to have found a match between a LIGO observation and a, a conventional light telescope observation. It's in the core of a distant galaxy. Um, they're actually hoping that it they're going to watch it now because they're hoping to see it again because the it looks like the black hole that resulted from this merger kind of got ejected from the center of the galaxy and is expected to sort of pass back through the debris disk in a couple of years, at which point it would presumably again stir up more trouble and cause uh, more flaring that they could see. Uh, but uh, another interesting result where they're trying to couple gravity with traditional kind of light telescopes and uh, and connect these gravitational events with things that we can actually see. Because it would explain, like, why does this quasar uh, flare like it does? And the answer might be it's there's a big black hole there that is uh, eating a lot of matter. And that's what's happening. Anyway, what I, like I said, black holes, we love them. They're dangerous. They're bad for us. But we love them. So weird. Really is, really is. It's a, it's a very, it's also great because like a black hole is itself a, a kind of a logical extension of a lot of Einstein's theories from the early part of the 20th century. And he never liked black holes, but it was, it was a logical outcome of, of his work. And LIGO is a logical outcome of his work. And so it's, you know, Einstein's got his uh, fingerprints all over this stuff. It's, it's very cool. I think that does it. I think, I think so. We've, we've, uh, checked in on the SLS. Mm -hmm. We've uh, we've gone out into deep space for black holes. Uh, and then we came back, uh, we also came back to Earth and talked about why we name things the way we do. So like, I feel like we, have, we are all over the place this week. Everywhere. And Canada led us through all of it with its robotic arm. That's right. Thank you, Canada. If you want to learn more about the stories we spoke about, we have a bunch of links in the show notes or on the web at relay.fm slash liftoff slash 127. In between episodes, we post links on our Tumblr. Jason, what's that URL? It's liftoffpodcast.space. Dot what? Space. Thank you. You're welcome. It's good. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. You can find Jason there as Snell, And you can find me online as ISMH. Until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, y'all. <laughs>